Hello and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Trees. My name is Thomas and I love trees. I say that every episode to really let you, the listener, know how much I love trees. In my script, the word love is always bolded so I know to emphasize it. But the faith I have in my own dendrological devotion is shaken in the face of one tree. Not because I don't love this tree, but because of the love this tree receives from others. I am of course talking about the Ohio Buckeye. This is a tree I find very interesting, but at the same time, this is a tree that the people of Ohio would absolutely die for. And I have to be honest with all of you, I wouldn't die for a tree. I fear death too much. And I'm not sure if I'll ever fully understand the insane fervor that folks have for the Buckeye. But you better believe I fully support it. So let's talk about the history of this Midwestern tree, and see if I can manage to convert myself, or any of you, to this woodsy religion. Alright gang, let's get down to the brass tacks. What is a buckeye? From a textbook perspective, buckeyes are a group of small deciduous trees native to the temperate parts of North America. And I'm not sure if this is a controversial claim, if this take is hot enough to get me some hate mail, but you could also call these trees horse chestnuts. You see, buckeyes belong to the horse chestnut genus Aeschylus. There's only a dozen and a half or so species in this genus around the world. Common names can, of course, vary from person to person, but it seems that every species outside of the Americas is referred to as a horse chestnut, and every species native to the United States are referred to as buckeyes. Morphologically, they're the same type of tree, and while this naming convention seems fairly hard-pressed, I've always been curious if an Ohioan would fight me if I called their state tree a horse chestnut. But just in case that is considered disrespectful, I will only call them buckeyes from here on out. So within the United States, there are around 8 to 10 species of buckeye, but we all know that there's only one that really matters. That would be the Ohio buckeye, the OG, so to speak. The Ohio buckeye grows across the Ohio River Valley and south along the eastern edge of the Great Plains. So from western Pennsylvania, across the lower Midwest to Missouri, and south along the eastern edges of Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas. Ohio buckeyes growing in that southern portion of the range are sometimes considered a separate species known as the Texas buckeye. I've also heard that this is a regional variety of the original species, but honestly I think it's just the same tree, and whoever called it a separate species was probably just a Texan who wanted Texas to have their own special tree. This species, the Ohio buckeye, is classified as Aeschylus glabra. Aeschylus comes from a Latin word that refers to a type of acorn. I believe that is in reference to how the buckeye nut is reminiscent of the fruits produced by members of the oak family, despite the fact that these trees are not related. I'm sure that's also where the European common name horse chestnut comes from, since chestnuts are in the oak family. I find it interesting that the buckeye fruit is compared to acorns because... We know acorns to be edible, but the buckeye nut is mildly toxic and generally should not be eaten. That back half of the name, glabra, comes from the Latin word for smooth. This is a common term that is used in plant names, typically when a plant's young shoots are smooth rather than having soft hairs, as many species like to have. 
The tree itself is small. Its height only ever reaches 20 to 40 feet or 6 to 12 meters. I don't think I've talked about this yet, but there are a few reasons why I always give a range of heights. There is of course genetic variability to consider, but I am also thinking about the tree's growth site. Most of the world's human population lives in urban areas, so when we see trees we are most likely seeing them in our yards, or along our streets, or maybe in our parks. So if the tree is growing near a lot of concrete, it's probably just hanging out in the lower end of that range. If it's planted in a park, maybe the higher end. And there's always potential for these trees to reach greater heights in a wild forest, but even with buckeyes, they'll never really get taller than 50 or 60 feet. They are considered an understory tree, something you can typically reach the branches on. But that just means that it's easy to see all the different parts of these trees. The leaves, for instance, are compound. This means that rather than a single leaf blade growing from a leaf stalk, there are multiple leaflets making up that whole structure. The composition of the buckeye's leaflets is referred to as palmate, protruding from the stalk radially like the fingers on your hand. One reason why the buckeye is referred to as the horse chestnut in Europe is because of these leaflets. Individually, they have a pretty similar shape to that of actual chestnut tree leaves. In spring, you'll find the buckeye flowers to be clusters of small yellow blooms that jut from the end of new branches. These flowers are characterized by long, tendril-like stamen. I'm not going to deep dive into flower anatomy, I'm very bad at it myself. But the middles of these flowers have these long noodles, and I think that's pretty rad. The clusters themselves make it look like there's a bunch of socks hanging off of these trees. And I think that's also rad. But then comes the fruit, yet another reason why their European relatives are called horse chestnuts. Because they look like chestnuts. Remember the chestnut seeds are encased in these spiky balls called burrs. The buckeye seed is too, but if you held those spiky balls next to each other, you could see the difference. The chestnut looks like it's covered in hairy spikes, kind of like a sea urchin, while the buckeye looks more like sparse horn protrusions, if that makes sense. Like yellow golf balls if you replace the dimples with little pokies. And when they open up, they reveal the seed. Well, then this is where you get the American name. The seeds are these dark brown nut-looking guys with a characteristic light brown spot on them. They were thought to look like a deer or a buck's eye. This seed is the buckeye. It is the good luck charm and center of obsession and superstition. But this seed has also inspired a tasty treat that I am especially fond of. The buckeye dessert can be made if you beat together peanut butter, cream cheese, and powdered sugar and form the mixture into a bunch of balls. Then you dip those balls into melted chocolate, being sure to leave some peanut butter exposed and chill them in the fridge until they harden. They have that dark brown exterior with a light brown spot that makes it look just like the seed. So I've pointed out here and there how these plants are similar to the chestnut and why their European cousins are named after them. But like I said, they aren't related at all. In fact, buckeyes and horse chestnuts are part of a separate taxonomic complaint that I have. And I haven't had one of these classification rants in a while, so just bear with me here while I get it all out. So whenever I was taking forestry classes in school, I was taught that these trees were in their own horse chestnut family called Hippocastanaceae. But apparently, genetic research, like the study of what actually makes each species individual, revealed it to be more closely related to those species found in the soapberry family. And they were all moved there. 
This same thing happened to the Maples, originally in their own family, but moved to the Soapberry family because we learned more about them. This is not my complaint. As we learn more about how our world works, it is expected that the way we refer to things changes. My complaint is that these changes were made in, like, 2005, and 10 years later, I was still not being taught this in forestry school. The idea of scientific names and classification is supposed to give a universal language to the natural world. Because even if you speak the same language, folks in different regions will call the same tree different things. And for those who speak different languages, obviously we're going to call trees different things. But what's the point of having a universal language of science if a forester and a botanist can't communicate? A forester could be talking about Hippocastanaceae, and depending on how young the botanist is, they may not have even heard of that, regardless of experience. Because Hippocastanaceae hasn't existed in 15 years. All that being said, yes, the Buckeyes belong to the Soapberry family, and thanks to our increasing understanding of genetics, we know that they are closely related to maples. How neat! I love maples! I'm a very organized person, so I just, I just like to know how pieces fit together. To me, looking at these family trees is like a behind-the-scenes extra, a the-making-of special for a TV show or movie. But I recognize that there are some folks who don't really care for those. They are just here for the stories. So let's tell some stories. Considering we're talking about a North American tree, it should go without saying that the first people to use the Buckeyes were various Native American tribes. Trees I've talked about in the past have served as a food source for these peoples. Not so much this one. The tree is too small to get a whole lot of inner bark from, and as I mentioned, the nuts were mildly toxic, which is not how I would ideally describe what's for dinner. They could be eaten, but they would need to be boiled for a long time to leach those toxins out. It had potential if the acorn harvest was weak, but otherwise it's just not worth it. Some tribes in California actually saw a really clever use for their local seeds' toxicity. They figured out how to grind the seeds up and would throw these grounds into the waters where they fished to slow down the fish. And the toxic was mild enough to where it wouldn't affect them when they actually ate the fish. But other than that, the biggest thing Buckeyes did for these people was to serve as a good luck charm. It was thought that carrying around a buckeye seed would bring good fortune, and this superstition was carried along to the white settlers, and is still practiced today. Those settlers came to call Ohio the Buckeye State. But the buckeye is more than just the seed, it is what Ohioans call themselves. This practice supposedly originates all the way back when white settlers first came to these lands in the 1780s and met with the tribes who were already living there. One of the tribal delegates referred to one of the white settlers as Hetuk, their word for the buck's eye, on account of the natives' observation that white people had big eyes like deer. But the settlers wore this title with pride and took it with them. Hetuk was also the word natives used to describe the buckeye tree, which is how these trees got their English name, and how Ohioans became so closely associated with them. Originally, buckeyes growing east of Ohio were referred to as American horse chestnuts, but these were buckeyes, and the Ohio settlers were also buckeyes. The name honestly didn't catch immediately. It was more of a small part of their culture, but it grew slowly over time. The name really boomed, though, in the 1840 presidential campaign of William Henry Harrison. 
Harrison had been born in Virginia, but later moved to Ohio and made that state his home. When he ran for president, his campaign was considered to be the first that emphasized style over substance. Rather than discussing stances and policies, his campaign manager focused on his image of a real man of the people, and he accomplished this by using the Buckeye. The symbol of his campaign revolved around a log cabin built with buckeye wood and decorated with buckeye nuts, which was really kind of weird because Ohioans generally didn't live in log cabins, they lived in normal houses. But the appeal worked, and Harrison won the election. Fun fact about William Henry Harrison, his inaugural speech was the longest of any president, lasting an hour and a half despite cold and rainy weather. This decision led Harrison to catching pneumonia and dying one month later, giving him the shortest term in office. But we remember his sacrifice for memorializing the symbol of the Buckeye forever. From that campaign, we really see the Buckeye moniker catching on in culture. And it wasn't just the state of Ohio that was into it, Ohio State University specifically was really into the Buckeye symbol. This college has adopted the Buckeye as their mascot, which is pretty rare to see, a plant mascot, but I'm into it. The mascot was officially adopted in 1950, but it was commonly a nickname for their students decades before that. In the 1930s, there was an editor who wrote for the school's newspaper that expressed concern over the idea of officially adopting the Buckeye. He was worried about the fact that school mascots, especially in sports, should be intimidating and that a plant was just not aggressive enough. That same article included a quote from one of the school's cheerleaders who suggested instead that they adopt the sheep as their mascot. And like, I've been around farm animals, I know that sheep can be aggressive. But really? You're worried about not being aggressive, and your solution is sheep. What are they going to do? Put me to sleep? Actually, if you phrase it in a certain way and give it a New York accent, telling someone you're going to put them to sleep is actually a little intimidating. But really, there could be no other symbol for this school other than the Buckeye. By then, it had dug itself deep into the psyche of this state. And so, their mascot became Brutus the Buckeye, a terrifying visage of a human with a Buckeye seed for a head. Honestly, I can see the complaint about a lack of aggression, but it's still pretty scary. But then again, most human-based mascots are. Considering though that the Buckeye is a good luck charm, is mildly toxic, and radiates pride, yeah, you know what, this is actually a really good mascot idea. The Buckeye fever really came to a head in the 1980s when the Ohio State University attempted to procure a very specific Buckeye-related artifact. You see, the scientific community was introduced to the Ohio Buckeye back in the early 1800s. A Buckeye seed was given to Professor Karl Ludwig Wildenau, director of the Botanical Garden in Berlin, Germany. The seed was germinated, planted, observed, described, named, and a specimen was taken to be pressed and mounted for preservation. The original specimen of an organism that is used to first describe and name it is called a holotype. Fast forward to 1985. Ohio State University desperately wants the Buckeye holotype. That's Buckeye Prime right there. So the college gets Berlin on the phone and asks if they can just borrow it. And Berlin says, uh... We don't give these things out. We've literally never loaned anyone specimens mounted by this professor, so... No. But Ohio State wasn't going to take no for an answer. They called in the negotiator. Whoever that might have been. Whoever this person was, they were bold enough to use some insane leverage. They got Berlin back on the phone, 
And the negotiator says, yeah, so maybe you don't understand. We really want the OG Buckeye. Only for a few months, too. We're not trying to keep it. And it's, you know, it's such a shame you fellas out there aren't willing to help us out, especially after everything America did for you guys after World War II. I remember how much of a mess Europe was and how we were so generous to give $15 billion of our own hard-earned American money to help dig you guys out. And all we're asking in return is this one old plant. Now, I'm not exactly sure how that conversation went, but these are the facts. Ohio State asked for this holotype. Berlin said no. Ohio State used the Marshall Plan that funded the rebuilding of Europe after World War II as leverage. Berlin said yes. If at any point you thought, Thomas, are they really obsessed with the Buckeye? Is that a fair word to use, obsession? You better not be asking that now. So for a few months in 1985, the Aeschylus Glabra holotype was put on display at the Ohio State University. It was actually displayed on the 50-yard line during a home football game against Iowa that fall season. And I just... I can't imagine the hype that must have existed in that stadium at the reveal of the original Buckeye. What I like to imagine happened is that some announcer man brought up Brutus the Buckeye out onto the field and said, Brutus? Have you ever met your father? And Brutus wouldn't have responded because mascots don't talk. And the announcer continues, Well, we've got a surprise for you, Brutus. What if we told you that your father was in the studio right now? And that he'd really like to meet you. And then they pull the curtain off the easel and show off that Buckeye holotype while Brutus just goes absolutely insane. Fun fact... One of Jerry Springer's first jobs was at a law firm in Cincinnati, Ohio. It's all connected. But for real folks, tree stories, they just don't get much better than that one. State pride is not always something I can understand because I move around so much, so there isn't really any state that I would call home. But it's something that I can admire, especially when that pride is based around a tree. The Ohio Buckeye is more than just the Ohio State tree. It's more than just a nickname. The Ohio Buckeye is the spirit of that state, and of the people who call that state home. It's hard to imagine the culture or the identity of these people without this tree. Next episode, we're jumping back to the Celtic Oam Tree calendar to talk about the holly. But wait, hold on a second. Isn't the holly, like, a Christmas thing? Why is it on the calendar for a summer month? Well, check back in on July 13th and find out. I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. If you have the time, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help us grow. The music is by Academy Garden. You can find more of their stuff on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Bandcamp. Wherever good music exists, they are there. My cover art is by Brittany Burnett. You can find her incredible photography on Instagram at BoomerangBrit. Find me on Twitter and Facebook at My Favorite Trees and get updates on future episodes and extra goodies. If you'd like to thank me back, you can do so by donating to your favorite sustainable organization, some of which are listed on my website, mftpodcast.com. Now, go find a tree that you love and give it a hug. <laughs>